Good evening, everybody. This is Brandon here again. We are moving forward with our study uh, on the progression of events as it relates to ecumenical history and the form of church councils. Today in particular, we will be picking up our study uh, that we'll be picking up from the uh, other council, which would have been the first council of Constantinople. And we're going to now progress to the council of Ephesus all the way in year 431. So, hey, let somebody know we got a great apostolic uh, podcast going on talking about church history. Again, so glad to have you here with us. And today we are going to be, as stated in the introduction, dealing with the Council of Ephesus from year 431. But today this is going to pick up in what is most commonly recognized as the Third Ecumenical Council. And aside from the first uh, confrontations that we see between uh, gentlemen like Arius, and then, you know, of course, the Apollinarians in their teaching, this council marks the beginning of a long battle between what uh, the Westminster Dictionary of Theologians uh, call the Antiochian, uh, Antiochian Christology uh, controversies, uh, which will mainly be seen between the Antiochian uh, Christology and the Alexandrian counterparts that they are going to be disputing with. Uh, and so one of the primary distinctives of these councils is going to be how the true humanity of Jesus Christ is going to be, how can you say, protected or preserved. Now, what you will have noticed in most of the church councils and most of these, uh, these confrontations, they have been Christological uh, in nature. But this one, uh, whereas some of the other ones dealt more with the divinization of the flesh, the uh, some kind of coming from a different angle, this council is going to uh, deal with the issues coming from a different area or going to be seen, I guess, as far as how it's going to be handled from a different way. And so we have to decide, are we going to hold the unity at the, dis, uh, the expense of the divinity? Or we're going to protect the humanity uh, at the expense of the so we, we, we're going to we're going to see how we're going to do this. And one of the key uh, actors within this drama that we see uh, taking place within church history is going to be seen in the man by the name of Nestorius. Nestorius is uh, who the Council of Ephesus uh, condemned, uh, and he is probably one of the most well-known exponents of Antiochian Christology. And so basically, the thing that makes Nestorius uh, famous, now I will have to give a disclaimer, there is a healthy debate that has been waged as the legitimacy of the claim made against Nestorius. And I think that is plausible to consider because it is important that we are living in a period where theology and uh, politics have been interwoven together in a way that's different than what you have seen in the uh, apostolic church. And by the apostolic church, I mean the church in the time period of the apostles, uh, because they were persecuted church. They did not have the luxury of having uh, imperial backing 
to personify or to push many of the ideas and things that they want to take place. And so with the issue of Nestorianism, it is quite possible that this accusation that most of us are taught about him uh, was the result of a controversy or conspiracy. Now, whether I'm here to prove that today is out of the question, but I just wanted to make sure that I am making uh, sure that my audience is aware of these things. And so historically, what has been reported, therefore, uh, according to uh, the Westminster Dictionary of Theologians, uh, Nestorius has declared that Jesus Christ had two natures, which isn't heretical from a oneness or Trinitarian standpoint, but Nestorius took it a little bit further. Nestorius believed uh, that not only did Jesus have two natures, but he had two persons uh, within him. And this is the way that one can fully, uh, how can we say, make a classical distinction between the divinity and the humanity. Now, the most uh, interesting part about Nestorius's um, approach to his Christology is that Theoretically, this would put four people uh, in the Godhead with the ascension of Christ, so to speak. But I would say even more interesting than that, this would be a wholesale rejection of what we have understood historically to be the communicado idiomatum, which is basically uh, the principle by which the two natures communicate, or better yet, the communicato idiomatum is the Latin phrase uh, that describes how uh, the divine nature communicates properties and abilities to the human nature and vice versa. So Nestorius, uh, Nestorius rather declared, for example, that he who was born of the Virgin Mary was Christ, but was not God. And as you could imagine, there was a healthy portion that may have had fears that this line of thinking could lead to a form of not only subordinationism, but probably Neo-Arianism, which wasn't not too long ago that the church, uh, and then when I say church, I am speaking of the historical ecumenical visible institution that claimed to be such, uh, had just kind of, in their mind, tampered that out with the victory of Nicaea. Uh, so the debate just began to ensue and it broke out and became very disruptive to uh, an imperial church now that is forming and it's trying to take its position and its new formed already at its new place of favor uh, with the Roman emperor. And so the sermons that were preached by Nestorius uh, would be things that on the nativity of the Lord, he preached by one of the chaplains declared that Mary had not given birth to God, but only to Christ. Uh, so this is possibly a way of him trying to make sure that there isn't this maybe exaltation of Mary, but in either instance, it still is problematic for a person who holds a holistic view of God incarnate in flesh. Therefore, what became, I guess, the touchstone of the controversy was the question of whether Mary is Theotokos, which Theotokos means the bearer of God, which being translated would mean the mother of God. Now, I think sometimes, especially from a Protestant lens, um, when we hear that phrase, it makes our skin crawl because we are very paranoid to the 
unnatural exaltation of Mary that is sometimes very prevalent among our Catholic friends. But in actuality, the phrase is signifying Theotokos, uh, that it was Mary because we understand that in the incarnation, that it was God manifested in the flesh. Therefore, if she gave birth to the physical uh, body of God incarnate, by nature of the person, she gave birth to God. Now, this is not to say that she created a birth to God essence. Even though as an apostolic Pentecostal, I would still veer away from such language because I think it's problematic in what we are trying to say. But the phrase uh, that will become the, the shield to Nestorianism would be pretty much solidified in the uh, wording of the phrase Theotokos, or some would say Christotokos, bearer of Christ. Now, I think the Christotokos is probably a lot more um, in line with the biblical narrative because the Christotokos uh, really exemplifies the fact that this, what she gave birth to, was the man Christ Jesus. And of course, we believe that it is in the man Christ Jesus that God is fully displayed and made clear. Personally, as a Pentecostal, I would I would not have an issue at this moment that I'm aware of using the phrase Christotokos because it's I don't see how it's problematic. And so on this point, I think it's very important to make it clear that the topic of debate was so much uh, was not so much of a how can we say a Mariological question as it was a Christological one. Uh, and so and therefore. I think sometimes coming at it from a Protestant lens when we're trying to so push so strongly against Mariology, I think we miss the historical context in which these things were taking place. And so the council followed, I guess, how can you say, as what the uh, Westminster Dictionary of Theologians would say, questionable, quote unquote, procedures when Cyril of Alexandria made himself master of the process and begin the sessions before the arrival of John of Antioch and his companions who were coming uh, to defend Nestorius. So he just kind of usurped authority, took it upon himself. And so when the later arrived in Ephesus and learned what Cyril and his father's re followers were doing, they formed their own rival council. The two assemblies proclaimed reciprocal condemnations, each one declaring that the other was not valid. Shortly afterwards, the delegates from Rome arrived, and with their support and that of the Emperor Theodosius II, the decisions of the Council of Cyril, uh, Cyril prevailed in the end. Although not without a series of uh, issues, which for some time included the imprisonment of both Cyril and John, uh, these things were eventually overcome. And what is interesting is that even after the victory, Cyril continued attacking the Antiochians, uh, issuing against them 12 anathemas, uh, and thus uh, continuing a dispute that finally led to the Council of Chalcedon. And so what, what you're going to notice is that these problems are not one-stop shops to getting things handled. They are very much built upon each other, and it's really not a solution. Uh, to what is going to become, I, I would say, historically a trend uh, in church history. Uh, and, and, and this is the dangerous part. And just my humble Southern opinion, whatever it is that I think that they go to take one step to try to overcome a problem, it seems that they within the same uh, breath end up kind of uh, being the victims of their own solutions. 
And so, again, uh, as we go to the, I guess I can we say just a uh, summer, summarization, a, a summation rather, of uh, what was taking place, uh, this third ecumenical council uh, resulted with Nestorius uh, being deposed. Uh, he was removed from his see, which was his area as a bishop that he uh, uh, had uh, prominence over, which was Constantinople, and he was excommunicated. His doctrines condemned. And of course, this has led to the uh, reaffirmation of the Nicene Creed. And now we see the Nicene affirmations are building strength. And when they, uh, it, it, it's 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 going to be very interesting because Nicaea is building strength in its prominence and it's overcoming these heretical upstarts. And so as a result, the council passed eight canons, the first seven dealing with matters arriving out of the doctrinal question in which uh, the Pelagian uh, Celsidus was condemned along with the Nestorius. And the eighth is going to deal with the jurisdictional rights of uh, Cyprus. In his rejection uh, of this council of Nestorianism, the council gave formal approval to the title Theotokos. And this is going to lay the groundwork for what will become, I guess, giving the legitimacy of later Mariology that's going to be developed. Because when you start saying things like mother of God, uh, it's going to be a very logical conclusion that some people are going to start saying now God mother. So we're going to look forward into this and we're going to see what's going to take place in the next council uh, that we're going to see examined. And so, hey, I'm so glad that you're here. Please let somebody know that we got an apostolic Pentecostal podcast going on talking about church history. And as always, it is the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. The Lord bless you in Jesus' name.